Hey, welcome to our online sermons at Coastal Community Church. So glad that uh, you're checking these sermons out on our internet and, and on our website. And so I want to welcome you. And, and I do want to encourage you that these sermons, online sermons, should be a supplement to your spiritual growth. But one of the things that we're big believers in at Coastal Community Church and I uh, want to encourage you is to find a home church uh, where you can not only grow in teaching, but also grow in community with other believers. So if you don't have a home church near you and you live in the Hampton Roads area, we'd love to invite you to Coastal Community Church. We just recently moved uh, to 101 Village Avenue. We have two services, uh, 915 and 11, and we'd love for you to check out one of our services here in the community. Over the summer, uh, a lot of changes going on at Coastal Community Church. We're changing locations, and, and part of what we wanted to focus on in the summer as we move into our new location is to remind us of the one thing that doesn't change and won't change at Coastal, and that's that we wanted to lift up the person and the work of God's Son, Jesus Christ. So Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews is the perfect letter to remind us that Jesus is greater than anything we could imagine. And so I hope you'll join us and enjoy this sermon called Greater Than. Good morning, Coastal Community Church. Great to see you this morning. If you have your Bible, do me a favor and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. We're uh, making our way through this letter, and uh, we've called this series Greater Than. We want you to to know that Jesus Christ is greater than all. And uh, um, and, and we're lifting up the gospel of Christ. And so we're thankful for our new location. And I hope you've enjoyed worshiping with us. And and uh, hope you're enjoying where each week we're trying to uh, make the building more suitable to our worship needs. And so uh, thank you for your patience in that journey. Uh, so this morning, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. There, if you don't have a Bible, there's probably one in a chair in front of you. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, do me a favor, take that one with you, okay? That's our gift to you. We'd love for you to have a copy of the Word of God and, uh, and read that on a daily basis. And there's a handout in your bulletin, and you can, you can follow along with me. I, um, this may come as a surprise to you. Um, I'm not really big on fashion, all right? So, uh, like, I, it, it's, my fashion choices is I look in the closet and I go, well, that looks comfy. I'll wear that today. And so that, and, and so those, are, I know there's some of you that are really into fashion. And I, I just want you to know, like, I appreciate it. Um, I don't understand it, to be honest with you. But I have a child that's that way. You know, he spends hours looking at himself in the mirror. He puts clothing on. He gets in front of a full-length mirror and kind of does this for a while, you know, and and my wife's really started this really neat thing recently. She found an erasable marker and she leaves us notes in the mirrors where we get ready in the morning, kind notes. And for my son that cares about fashion, uh, she recently put a note in the mirror and said this. It said, you look great. Come down to the van and leave for school or we'll be late again. Okay. And so that's how that went. So so I, just, I, you know, that's kind of her note to him, and so that was her note. And I, you know, I, I don't like to wear a suit and tie. Like ties for me are like, oh, you know. But there's three times in my in my workplace, I guess, that I'll wear a suit and tie. All right. Number one, I will wear a suit and tie if I'm doing your funeral. All right. I will show up suit and tie. I'll look my best for you. Okay. And I'll put words around your life and hopefully say some great things about you. All right. I'll wear a suit and tie if you're getting married. 
if you're getting married, I'll show up in my suit and tie, all right? And so that's the second time I will dress up. The third time that I will wear a suit and tie, and I've actually only done this once, and it was, it was when we were building our first building at our old place. I went to the bank trying to borrow at the time $2 million so that we could build, build a building, all right? So, so here's what I'm telling you. If I come walking up your sidewalk to your front door and I'm on a suit and tie, it's one of three things. You're about to die, okay? I'm about to marry you, or I need money. All right, all three, you should run, okay? All three, you might want to run. So there you go. But, uh, you know, we dress up on various occasions, right? And there are certain things we kind of prepare for, and we prepare differently for the, those occasions. And this morning, we're going to talk about how Christ is greater than any high priest that ever walked the planet Earth. And now he's our great high priest. And, and one of the things I've been trying to challenge you with is that in order to understand Hebrews, you really got to kind of understand the Old Testament. And so this letter is written to some New Testament Jews or New Testament Christians, and they're going through persecution. And by the way, church, I, you know, I know when I talk about persecution, like, I don't want to be overly dramatic this morning, but I do want to prepare us as followers of Christ in this culture. The culture is going 100 miles an hour against Christianity. Are you aware of that? And it's nothing I can necessarily do to stop it. I want to prepare us, though, as followers of Christ to hold on to Jesus no matter what comes our way. Does that make sense? Because that's what's happening in this letter. These people are, are losing their stuff and their livelihood, and some are even being jailed because, not, not because they've committed a crime, but because they're followers of Jesus Christ. And I don't think we can rule that out in our culture, okay? And so I want to prepare you with this letter. But these, the, the, the recipients of the letter of Hebrews would have had in the back of their mind a very good understanding of the Old Testament. So I've been encouraging you to read the first five books of the Bible in preparation for these sermons. And so you got to understand that, you know, just like I wear a suit on three occasions, that there was an occasion in Old Testament history, okay, that these recipients of this letter would have understood. And I think I have to give you this understanding before this passage makes sense this morning. It was called the Day of Atonement, and it was this one day a year where the high priest would enter the inner sanctuary of the temple, what was called the Holy of Holies, and it was this representation of entering the very presence of God. Okay, it was entering into this holy place, and God gave very specific instructions on how the high priest was to enter the Holy of Holies. In fact, if the high priest entered in any other way other than the way God called him to dress and what God called him to do, the high priest could be struck dead in the presence of the holiness of God. Now, Old Testament is just shadows of the things to come. But one of the things that this holy of holy, this entrance in the holy of holies was shadowing for us is that we don't get to enter the presence of God any old way we want. There's a dress code, if you will. And we're going to get to that in a minute. But I just want you to understand, and if you had your Bible, if you wanted to read this later today, you can read it. Uh, the high priest Aaron in Leviticus chapter 16 was given very detailed instructions on how to enter the Holy of Holies. Now, I, may, I, may, I summarized it for you this morning. I just want you to hear this. On the Day of Atonement, he, before he entered the Holy of Holies, he had to bathe. 
And then he had to, to put on the particular clothing that God commanded that he put on. And then he would, he would choose from the people two goats. He would choose two goats. And he would, he would cast lots over these two goats. And I'll tell you what, what happened as he cast lots in just a moment. And then before he entered the Holy of Holies, he would, he would sacrifice on the altar a bull because God was trying to teach the people of Israel that there could be no remission of sin or no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And of course, this foreshadowed the shedding of blood of the perfect one, our great high priest, Jesus Christ. And so the high priest Aaron, he would shed, shed a, he would, he would, he would sacrifice a bull on his behalf because of his own sin, because he was an imperfect high priest. He too would enter the Holy of Holies as a sinner. And then after that, he would take these two goats, and one of the goats was to be set aside for a sacrifice. And this goat was to be sacrificed for the sins of the people, so that their sins could be forgiven. And then the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies in this direct meeting with God before what was called the mercy seat, where he would ask for God's mercy for the sins of the people. And when he entered in, he was to take a coal from the sacrifice that he, that he made on his own behalf and sprinkle that coal with incense, and he would enter the Holy of Holies with this beautiful smelling incense. These were the instructions of the Lord. And he would take blood from the two sacrifices of the bull and the goat. He would sprinkle it on the mercy seat, representing his understanding that there had to be shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sin so that he could receive the mercy of God. And then after he did this, he would come out and he would take the second goat. So the first goat was sacrificed. Here's, this is really cool, by the way. The second goat, he would symbolically place his hands, which represented placing the, the sin of the people on this goat. And the people would celebrate as this goat was released into the wilderness. Representing what? The taking of the sins away from the people. Which, by the way, we get a word in our culture for this. Guess what it is? scapegoat, right? And so the scapegoat would take the sins of the people. And so in Psalms, we're told that God forgives our sins as far as what? The east is from the west. Isn't that beautiful? And so the scapegoat would go. And then the high priest would bathe again. After all this was over, and he would, and, and, and then he would dress in his own clothing, and then he would once again offer another sin offering, and then he would carry the remains, or someone in the camp would carry the remains of the bull and of the goats, carry them outside of the camp. And this was how the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. And so as the author of Hebrews is writing to these Jewish, now Christians, followers of Christ, who are thinking about, because of difficult times, they're thinking about leaving the faith. He's now appealing to them that, listen, if you were to leave Christianity, you're going to go back to this old form of worship, which was just a shadow of the great high priest, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so with that kind of background this morning, so you have an understanding of what's happening here, the author of Hebrews says, why would you leave the, old, the, the new thing that God is doing, the, the finished product, to go back to the shadow of things? Does that make sense? 
And so he says, listen, you can have confidence in your high priest because Jesus Christ is our great high priest. Aaron was just, Aaron and the Levitical priesthood was just a shadow of things that have now arrived. We worship a great high priest. Hebrews chapter four, verse 14, the author says, so then, since we have a great high priest who entered heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let's hold firmly to what we believe. Okay, so I told you last week, there's, you know, we went through several weeks of warnings, and I know it's been heavy in here, and it was intentionally heavy, and it was supposed to be heavy because the author is encouraging us not to desert the faith, not to deserve the, desert the journey, but to cling to Christ as long it is called today. And he was encouraging us with there are eternal consequences if we don't hold to Christ. But now he turns the tone more positive and he encourages if we cling to Christ, we hold firmly to what you believe because he's our great high priest. It's the positive things of clinging to Christ. He's our great high priest. There's none like him that's ever walked the earth. He's superior in character and in work. And so we have confidence in his high priest. Why? Well, he's a sympathetic high priest. That's what the, that's what the other says. He's, he, he's sympathetic to us. And you're going to see, again, the scriptures are going to challenge us to think about the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ. He's sympathetic. Why? Because he's human just like us. Verse 15 of chapter 4. This high priest of ours, he, he understands our weaknesses. Well, why does he understand our weaknesses? Because he, he's faced all the same testings that we do, yet he what, church? What's it say? He did not sin, right? And by the way, I, I'm going to park here for a minute. I want you to keep this verse in mind as we go forward. But the word sympathize literally means to, to suffer along with. Our high priest sympathized. He suffered. He, he knows what it's like to go through difficult times. This verse gives us some important insight, by the way. In chapter 5, which we're going to get to in a minute, you've got to remember the idea that Jesus did not sin. And we're going to read chapter 5 in light of what we're learning here in chapter 14. But Jesus' journey is like ours and it's unlike ours. And by the way, what does the word sin mean? Does anybody know? It's an archery term. What does it mean? Anybody know? To miss the mark, right? And so the Bible, when we talk about sin, okay, it means that we have missed the mark of God's holiness and God's righteousness. Now we, our high priest has never sinned, but he has been tempted as we are tempted. He knows what it's like. You're sitting here this morning like God is distant from me. He doesn't know what it's like. Wrong. Jesus Christ, our perfect high priest, he knows what it's like. And by the way, here's a little by the way. I think the Bible teaches that temptation is not the same as sin. That should encourage you, by the way, this morning. If you're like me, there's certain tendencies to miss the mark of God's holiness and God's righteousness. It seems like a lifelong battle, doesn't it? Maybe like you have this tendency, maybe, maybe there's an addiction in your life and you hear some Christians, they came to Christ and it immediately went away. Praise God for that, right? But maybe your journey is like, man, I came to Christ and, and now this addiction that I had before I was a believer, it's like a daily lifelong wrestle. And maybe God didn't completely take it away because he wants you to cling to your savior on a daily basis. Does that make sense? 
Temptation is not the same as sin. In fact, the Bible teaches that before Christ, you were dead in sin. What that means is you loved your sin. You loved your rebellion. You loved missing the mark of God's holiness and righteousness. You were okay with that. But now in Christ, guess what? You, because of the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, are now freed up to wrestle. Isn't that cool? Which, by the way, in the Old Testament, Jacob wrestled all night with God, right? And at the end of it, God changed his name. And what did he change his name to? Israel, which means what? Anybody know? To wrestle with God. I love that, by the way. Of all the things God could have named his people, why didn't he name his people to praise God or to worship God or to love God or to serve? Why didn't, God, why didn't he change the name to all these great things? No, he changed the name of Jacob to Israel, which means to wrestle with God. And I love that. First of all, when you wrestle with someone, you're in hand-to-hand combat. You're clinging no matter what. You're, it's not always easy, but you're wrestling, right? And you are now freed up to wrestle in this process called sanctification, which Nate just prayed about, right? This, this process of becoming more and more like Christ, of the process of being made holy, you're now free to wrestle with your sin and walk in obedience by the power of the Spirit, community, the Word of God. Does that make sense? And so our great high priest, he was, he was tempted, but he didn't sin. And so we have this perfect high priest which now we can draw near to God. Because of Christ, we can draw near to our creator, our God who is holy, our God who is set apart, our God who is not like us, Hebrews 4.16. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. And guess what we'll receive there? We will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Now, by the way, the, the boldly here, sometimes this gets mistaught, right? This, this boldly does not mean we get to come into God's presence and name and claim your better future, right? Sometimes people say, well, you know, we can come boldly. We can ask for whatever we want. No, the text is actually quite specific in what you can ask for as you come boldly into the presence of God because of our great high priest. You can ask for mercy, which, by the way, mercy is what? Not getting what? you deserve, right? And you can ask for grace, which is getting what you don't deserve. And the grace that you can ask for is help in the time of need. Now, I love this because you're not going to come and ask for grace and ask for God to help you when you you have a need unless you're humble, right? It requires humility to bow a knee and say, I need help. Yes? Yes? And so we enter the presence because we have a great high priest who's interceding on our behalf so that we're not consumed by God's holiness. And we can come boldly knowing because of our high priest who shed his perfect blood for us and is now in the presence of God. He's a, we, we can come asking boldly for both mercy and grace and help when we need it. And so we have incredible confidence in Christ to draw near to God through our high priest Jesus Christ who is interceding on our behalf. And by the way, I can't wait till next week when we're going to talk about what he's interceding for, what he's doing. It's incredible. So I'm hopefully whetting your appetite for next week, okay? Now, the author gives us the reasons why Jesus is superior to all these past priests. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. 
Every high priest is a man chosen to represent other people in their dealings with God. He presents their gifts to God and offers sacrifices for their sin. And he is able to deal gently with ignorant and wayward people because he himself is subject to the same weaknesses. That is why he must offer sacrifices for his own sin as well as theirs. So this is where Leviticus 16 is very important, right? Aaron would first offer sin on his own behalf or offer sacrifice for his own sin on his own behalf before entering the Holy of Holies. This is where we get into the deity of Christ, right? Christ did not have to do that. So he was humanity, so he understands our weakness, but he was deity, so he was unlike any other priest that ever entered the Holy of Holies. He deserved to be there. Does that make sense? He didn't have to offer sacrifice for his own sin. And so Jesus is superior to any other priest that ever walked planet Earth. And so he's telling these folks, before you think about deserting the faith, where else are you going to go? Who else is going to plead your cause in the presence of a holy God? You're going to do it on your own behalf? You're going to return to the Old Testament way of doing things? No, this is Jesus Christ, our superior priest, is fully God and fully man. He perfectly represents us in the presence of God. And so being fully human, Jesus knows what you're going through. But being fully God, he's unlike you in his sin nature. And so Jesus is superior to any earthly priest. And Aaron, the Old Testament priest, his lineage is is no comparison to Christ. Jesus serves in this position because he's been appointed by God, okay? So Jesus was appointed by God to be our high priest, Hebrews 5 verse 4. No one can become a high priest simply because he wants such an honor. He must be called by God for this work just as Aaron was. That is why Christ did not honor himself by assuming he could become high priest. No, he was chosen by God who said, you are my son, today I have become your father. And in another passage, God said, you are a, high, a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Melchizedek, okay, because chapter 7 deals with this idea of Melchizedek. Now, I, ha- I got a, a text. Uh, yesterday from one of our church members who was reading this passage in preparation for the sermon this morning and just wanted more information about Melchizedek. Okay, Melchizedek is a is a, a character that shows up in the Bible in three verses in Genesis. So it's fascinating that the author of Hebrews latches on to this person called Melchizedek. And so this church member wanted to find out more about Melchizedek. And so they did research the way we all do research. She decided to Google Melchizedek, okay? She got her phone out and said, okay, Google, Melchizedek. And she got how to deal with milk in the deck, okay? So there you go. I'm sure Google was like, what is going on? She told me I had to pay for that illustration, $29.99. So I owe you that. But Jesus is a, appointed by God. He's a divine appointment. He's a divine appointment. Jesus has been appointed by our creator God. I want to I be clear this morning because I, I know this is where sometimes in these texts it can get to be a yawner, okay? And I don't want you to do that. I want your mind to be engaged this morning so that your, so that your heart can be a worshiper of God. 
If you're here this morning and you're seeking God, God has appointed his son, Jesus Christ, as your high priest. Like, don't think you can leave here this morning and get to God any old way you want. This is very important. This is very exclusive. This is why if you're here this morning and you're a Bible-believing Christian, okay, I'm going to be bold. You cannot believe that there's multiple roads to God. The Bible does not teach. It doesn't even open the door to that. It's exclusive. Jesus has been appointed by our creator. By the way, this goes all the way back to chapter one where the author assumes that you understand that you're here today because there's a creator, okay? And so this creator God has appointed divinely who is your path to connecting with your creator. It's not multiple roads get there. It's through Jesus Christ. He's been appointed by God. And he's been appointed by God through the same order as Melchizedek. All right, I'll let you spell it now. Milk in a deck. Okay, there we go, Melchizedek. And Melchizedek had a divine appointment. And again, I don't want to steal thunder from sermon a couple weeks, but Melchizedek shows up in Genesis chapter 14. Abraham, who's the patriarch of our faith, okay, he, he goes to battle. And he, after the battle, he, he, he wins the battle. And with his plunder, he comes and he runs into this character that we don't know anything about, past, present, or future. He just shows up, right? And Abraham recognizes Melchizedek as both a king and a priest, And he worships God through this priest, Melchizedek. And in fact, it's the first time we see in Scripture the idea of a tithe. And and Abraham actually gives a tenth of his plunder to Melchizedek. And Jesus is in the same order as Melchizedek. Meaning, he has no beginning or has no end Just as Melchizedek kind of shows up on the scene mysteriously, Jesus in some ways has a mystery about him as the Son of God, a divine appointment. Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek. And finally, the author concludes that Jesus is our perfect high priest. Jesus is our perfect high priest. Check out Hebrews 5, verse 7 through 9. While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. And even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. And this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest, and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. Now, a couple things about your perfect high priest. Number one, Jesus intercedes on your behalf, okay? One of the reasons that I don't take the title priest, okay, is because I'm not a priest. I'm a pastor. I give oversight and leadership to a church, okay? But, but Jesus is your priest. You don't, you don't need another high priest. One of the reasons in Protestant world, okay, that we don't go confess our sins to a earthly priest is because we have a high priest in the presence of God that you can confess your sins to who intercedes on your behalf. Does that make sense? It's from this passage that we get that understanding. Jesus is your high priest. He intercedes for you in the presence of, the, of our holy God. 
It's why when, when we pray to God, our heavenly father, we pray in Jesus, what? Why? Because that's the only reason we get to be in his presence. If you want to enter the presence of God in your own name, you as a sinner will be consumed by the holiness of God. Do you understand that? It's only the gospel of Christ through the person and work of Jesus that allows us to enter the presence of God. It's why in our culture, you can pray to God all you want, but if you pray to God in the name of Jesus, it stirs up all kinds of problems for people. Jesus is the controversial figure in our culture, yes? It's not God. Of course, we're talking about the Holy Trinity. I hope I'm kind of preaching with that kind of presupposition that you understand that, right? But Jesus intercedes for us. In fact, we see this, this tenderness of Jesus all throughout his ministry towards his people. Right? You see it in John chapter 17, which I don't have in your handout, but in John chapter 17 where Jesus he actually prays for you. Did you know that? You can look that up today. Look, John 17, verse 20, right? Then you look it up. Jesus actually prays for those who will believe after he leaves. And after the, the apostles are done with their ministries and they plant churches and the faith gets passed down from generation to generation, he prayed for you specifically. Amazing. It's incredible. In Matthew chapter 23, we see this tenderness of Jesus where he cares for his people. Thir verse 37, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills its prophets and stones God's messengers. Man, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you won't let me. He's tender towards his people. In John chapter 11, where Jesus shows up when his friend Lazarus has died. By the way, if you wanted to get into scripture memory, okay? Like, I've never really memorized scripture, okay? This would be a great starting point, okay? John chapter 11, verse 35. The Bible says, Jesus wept, okay? Certainly you can memorize that. You know, but like, all kidding aside, like, this is a fascinating verse that is worth committing to memory. Like, why is Jesus weeping here? I mean, if you know the story, he, he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Like, he knows what he's about to do. So if he's about to raise somebody from the dead, well, I mean, why is he weeping? Did you ever ask that question? I asked that question. The text really doesn't say, but these are Sean Brown's thoughts. I, I think that he's weeping because he looks around him and he sees all his friends weeping because their loved one has passed away and he understands that this death is a consequence of sin. The wages of sin is what? And he realizes, man, this was never God's original intent. He never intended for the world to be broken, but because he loves us, he sent his son to reconcile, to restore all that was broken. Really, what we deserved was the wrath of God, but because God's love. And by the way, when you think about God's love, I want you to think about God's love in Christ. God loves you in Christ. And he's restoring us. I think, I think Jesus is weeping because he's tender towards the brokenness of our sinful condition. And he cares for us. And so, God, and so our, 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 our high priest, he intercedes for us. And we pray, we enter the presence of God in his name. His service, by the way, as high priest, was shaped by suffering. 
our high priest, and this is why it's important to know Jesus is not disconnected from you. It's, his service was shaped by suffering. Our high priest knows suffering. He's not disconnected from difficulty. You don't need to wonder if God knows what it's like to suffer. Right? The old song that was a smash hit, what if God was one of us? He was. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what you're going. If you're here this morning and your burden is heavy, he knows. He's not a disconnected God. I said this, I think in the first or second sermon that I preached on this, where we talked about the founding fathers of this culture were mostly deists. That means they believed that God kind of started the world and then he took his hands off. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible entered in through Christ and he knows what you're going through. It was perfected by suffering. And by the way, some of your passages here say this. They say that Jesus was being made perfect. That's verse 9, okay? Jesus was being made perfect. And so a lot of groups, particularly cults, they misuse this that by saying that somehow Jesus was imperfect and then he became perfect. And remember I said that we have to read this verse through verse 15 of chapter 4, right? That Jesus did not have sin. So we know that can't be the answer, right? The idea of being made perfect is that Jesus was, con- was always without sin. And actually, I, I think that the, new te- uh, the NLT, which is what I'm using here this morning, actually captures the idea pretty well. It says, in this way, God qualified him. When the text says being made perfect, it's not in the sense of improving his nature, but rather became perfect in the fact that he completed his qualification or his, if I, to use kind of a school term, he completed his course for becoming the perfect eternal high priest. The same way you high school graduates or college graduates have completed your course, if you will. And so the author's teaching that his course was suffering, And he completed his course so that he could be the perfect eternal high priest for us, interceding on our behalf. And so he completed his course that his heavenly father set before him. And because he completed this course to be our perfect eternal high priest, eternal life is secured through him. Okay? So I'm going to finish on this point this morning. See? This is where you got to remember what's going on here. Jesus Christ submitted to the will of the Father. He completed his course that included suffering and difficulty and hardship so that he might be the perfect eternal high priest that intercedes on our behalf, securing your eternal life and my eternal life. So remember what's happening here, right? The people are being persecuted. They're going through difficult times because they're Christians, and so the author's encouraging them, hold on, cling to Christ every day while it's called today. Get up today and worship Christ. Get up tomorrow or we'll call tomorrow today and worship Christ. Get up on Tuesday and worship Christ. Every day, get up and cling to Christ. Because our high priest, Jesus, the perfect high priest, is offering to us and has completed eternal life. Here's what I think the author is saying. Don't exchange the temporary and the difficulty of the temporary for the eternal. Keep in mind that even when you're going through difficulty, it's a brief thing in time. The Bible says maybe you get 80 years on earth and it's a vapor in comparison to eternity. Keep the eternal picture. 
And so even if you're going through a difficult time, you can recognize, you know what, my life is this short time. God's given me an assignment. I'm going to cling to my faith in Christ no matter what, recognizing that my high priest has secured for me eternal life. I tried to think how to illustrate this. I, I'm using a story that I've used before, okay, and I, I wanted to come up with a better story, and I just think this one nails it. It's a story of a young man that probably many of you have heard about. He was born on October 8th, 1927. He was born in Portland, Oregon. He grew up in what many of us would call a Christian home. His dad was a preacher. And his mom ran around the house encouraging her children to live for Christ. In the early 40s, this young man went to high school. He was a high school athlete. He was an excellent actor. He joined the public debate club, and it became obvious that he was an incredible public speaker. And so his teachers encouraged him to use his unique skill set to make a difference. And here's what they encouraged him to do. You should take this skill set of public speaking and debating and your good looks and you should go to Hollywood and be an actor and make a difference. During his college years, this young man began to have a burden for international missions. And, and his burden got even more specific. He God was stirring in his heart. Not only did he want to go on the mission field, but he wanted to go to a place where nobody had gone. He wanted to find a place where there was no church. He wanted to find a group of people that had no opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. He came home on one of his spring breaks. He shared this with his family. They said, you're crazy. Find yourself a nice American ministry position. Do that. The more this young man prayed, the more he realized that God was burdening him for this country called Ecuador, and specifically a little tribe inside of Ecuador called the Wadani tribe. The Wadani tribe had known to be one of the most violent tribes in all of Ecuador. Anytime Western culture had entered the Wadani tribe, many times they didn't leave. Because the Wadani tribe was known to kill anybody coming into their, their culture. And so in 1952, this young man arrived in Ecuador and he began to serve with some missionaries there. Eventually he hooked up with four other missionaries. And they decided to try to make uh, inroads into the Wadani tribe with an airplane. And they perfected a technique where the airplane would make large circles over the village and because of the forces of nature they would run a line in a bucket eventually they learned to bring this bucket right into the village while they circled and so they for many months would circle the Wadani tribe and lower a bucket of gifts and with a loudspeaker attempt to make contact. After many months of doing this with the Wadani tribe they finally decided to set up a base camp right outside the Wadani tribe with the hopes of making contact and introducing this village that had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel. On January 7th, a group of tribesmen came out and made face-to-face -face contact with this young man and his four friends 
And they were so excited because they thought they were finally going to have the opportunity to share the gospel. These, this contact, this group of people that made contact with these missionaries went back to the village of the Wanani tribe and they lied about the, attention, the intentions of these four missionaries. And on January the 8th, 1956, at the age of 29, Jim Elliott and his four missionary companions were killed by 10 Wudani tribal warriors. Now, if you're me, he's 29 years old, he had the looks, he had the ability. We would look at the life of Jim Elliott and we'd go, man, what a waste of life. I mean, couldn't he have done something bigger? And be- I mean, he didn't even make it into the Wadani tribe with the gospel. It was discovered in his journal where several months earlier Jim Elliott had written, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, for those of you who know the story, the story of Jim Elliott and the four missionaries went viral. Now, in the 50s, that meant they got put in Life magazine. Okay, so that's how that went out. It went viral. And the American church rose up, and they supported the missionary effort. And led by his widowed wife, Elizabeth Elliott, they were able, actually, to plant a church in the Wadani tribe. By the way, you can read the story in the book Through Gates of Splendor. I would encourage you to read that, Through Gates of Splendor. You're the movie-watching type. You can watch the movie called The End of the Spear that portrays the story through Nate Saint, the pilot. You know, Jim Elliott considered it a bargain to exchange his life to pursue God and his kingdom wholeheartedly. Jim Elliott was a guy that said, why not exchange the temporary for the eternal? And I can't help but think of the teaching of Jesus, Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, where Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. And in his excitement, he hid it again and he sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. And these people that are receiving this letter of Hebrews, they're being persecuted. They're losing everything because of their belief in Jesus Christ. And the author says, listen, don't exchange the temporary for the internal because you have a great high priest that has secured your salvation and he's in the presence of God and he's interceding on your behalf until the day that you make it home. Isn't that great news? I think about the song we all sing, right? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. You know the rest, right? What do we have? We have no less days to sing God's than when we first. Here's what the song is saying 10,000 years is like the first second of your life here on earth. You got so many more to go. 
church, my encouragement this morning is all I wanted you to get out of the sermon. Here's the so what. Cling to Christ. Cling to Christ. Because our great high priest is offering and has guaranteed our eternal life. Gladly exchange the temporary for the pursuit of the eternal. Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you loved us so much that you didn't leave us in our mess. That you sent your son, the God-man. He fulfilled all the shadows of the Old Testament. God, for the one in the room that is settling for the temporary... For the one in the room that's neck deep in sin, as if that's all that there is, maybe today is the day that they say, you know what, I I want to turn from that. I want to exchange the 70 or 80 years of my life for the eternal. I pray for us as a church, God, we, we, we don't know what the future holds, but I pray as believers, God, that we would cling to the gospel of Christ with our eyes focused on eternity. That we would not exchange the temporary for what is eternal. That we might uplift the gospel of Christ until our faith becomes sight. We long for that day. Encourage us this morning with your truth. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.